1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Okay, did you hear that there? There was applause. The music starts to swell. I'm painting you a picture here. You're in one of those conference centres, and it's a huge room. The spotlight is illuminating one man. The man meant to bring the world together to stop catastrophic climate change takes the stage.
3: Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Your Highnesses, Your Excellencies, Esteemed Delegates, Distinguished... The
2: audience before him includes representatives of oil-rich countries, and they're gathered in Saudi Arabia.
3: We cannot, we cannot unplug the energy system of today before we build the new system of tomorrow. It is simply not practical or possible.
2: His name is Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber. He's leading the upcoming UN Climate Summit, but get this, he's also an oil man, the chief executive of the United Arab Emirates state-run oil company. That speech posted on the UN's climate website is from one of several events leading up to COP28, and that starts within weeks in Dubai in the UAE. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Today, we're asking, can an oil man solve the climate crisis? The Sultan rarely gives interviews, but Fiona Harvey, the environment editor for The Guardian, has managed to question him on several occasions for the publication. Fiona's with me now, and we're also going to hear some bits of those interviews. Fiona Harvey, Hello. Hello. Before we talk about Sultan Al Jabber I'm wondering if you can describe the actual location of this year's gathering just to give people a sense of it
4: Well it's spectacular uh, the the COP is being held in a place called Expo City in Dubai it's a mixture of sort of space age Architecture uh, and some some quite spectacular features. you know it's it's got these sort of uh, solar panels sort of mounted on these things that look like giant mushrooms. Uh, it's got pavilions for all different countries. Uh, around the place, uh, you know, that that are sort of styled according to their natural, uh, their their national sort of characteristics. Um, there's a gigantic waterfall where the water can appear to flow uphill. It, it's astonishing. It sounds like a spectacle. Yes, it really is very unusual. I mean, I've been to 16 cops before now, and I have to say, this is the most
2: unusual setting I think there has ever been. I bet. And in more ways than one. I'm wondering, though, how, given all of your experience, how, how important do you think this cop gathering is compared to the others over the years?
4: Well, this is absolutely crucial. I mean, there are no unimportant cops anymore. But basically now, we are so close to the edge of climate breakdown, of of taking this to irretrievable levels, uh, that really every time the world can meet to discuss this is absolutely vital. If we don't cut greenhouse gas emissions by about half in this decade, so in the next seven years, then we will have no chance of staying within 1.5 degrees uh, of global heating and that means that we will face catastrophe we we, we will see uh, the impacts of climate change rapidly become uh, really irreversible so we, we we've got everything to play for here it's it's a, an astonishingly important event
2: so that that makes the sultan a very important person he's charged with getting the world to in essence walk away from oil and and the emissions they generate do you think he's up to the challenge has he accepted the challenge he's extremely keen to
4: do this job and he really believes that he is the man who can deliver what he calls a course correction for the planet uh, to change the emissions trajectory that we're currently on uh, and bring us down to the levels that are needed. He thinks that he's best placed to do this because he is alone of
2: all the COP presidents we've ever had. He's a businessman. Okay, but but how does he react then to the suspicion and the criticism that's been voiced about his involvement in the fossil fuel industry? I think he's had to have a very thick
4: skin because he's had a, a lot of criticism. Um, and, you know, it's, it's reasonable criticism because putting a, 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 an oil man, the head of a national oil company, in charge of the climate summit uh, where we will be discussing phasing out fossil fuels, that's a pretty audacious thing to do. Um, so, yeah, he's had to overcome a lot, an awful lot of criticism and... Um, I don't know whether his critics feel that they have had adequate answers to their questions, but he is certainly determined to to forge ahead.
3: Some see the family challenge as a challenge, pure challenge. And some see it as an immense challenge. I see the mirror image of that as an immense economic opportunity. I see it as a phenomenal social development opportunity.
4: Does he seem sincere in that? I met him several times, and he certainly seems to be sincere. He he has a, a great deal of self belief, and he has a, a, he's very intelligent. He understands, you know, the climate crisis. He knows what he's talking about here, and he's he's obviously very expert uh, in these issues. But at the same time, he is the head of an oil company, and when I asked him. Was he going to put that oil company out of business? He was very clear that they weren't. Um, he does see a long-term future for fossil fuels. So this is not really compatible with what we're being told by, by scientists. Sultan al jaber thinks that he can square this circle uh, by using new technologies uh, like carbon capture and storage. And... He thinks that the oil that is produced in UAE is actually preferable to oil that comes from other sources. It's uh, lower carbon, he says. Um, so he, he argues that, that, you know, his company is, is doing a lot better uh, uh, on the climate crisis than all those other oil companies out there.
2: Is it true, though, does the UAE have a track record of being able to cut emissions efficiently?
4: UAE does have uh, a more modern attitude to its uh, oil extraction than other countries. Um, It has invested in reducing the emissions associated with extracting its oil and gas. However, at the end of the day, it is still oil and gas. Um, And when it's burnt, it produces carbon dioxide just the same as any other Oil and gas. So the, the emissions associated with extracting oil and gas are only a tiny part of the emissions that come from fossil fuels. So arguing that uh, that your oil and gas is lower lower carbon than someone else's oil and gas is a bit like angels on the head of a pin. <laughs>
2: It's it's a familiar um, argument because we certainly hear it in Canada from from those who support uh, the oil sands projects in Alberta um, and their idea of being able to use carbon capture technology to keep going and and to to insist that they will keep going. But you mentioned he makes this argument that it's good that he's a businessman. He he thinks that being the head of an oil company could be a benefit for COP. How can you tell me more about how he makes that argument?
4: Well, he says, and, and it does have uh, some uh, reason to it, uh, he says that there's never been a businessman uh, at the head of uh, the COP talks before um, and that he can bring a mindset uh, that's really uh, about achieving things, you know, that, that that's about, uh, you know, fulfilling a, a business plan, a, a sort of a, a business plan for the climate. In a sense, is is what he's talking about. You know, he said that, you know, uh, as someone who runs a business, he's used to having to uh, fulfill his obligations, he's used to having to deliver on his plans. He talks about uh, KPIs, you know, key performance indicators, uh, and so on. So he's talking a a sort of a language that is, that's never been spoken at COPS before, where everything is is about, uh, you know, politics and, geopolitics and incremental change Uh, it's not really about sort of setting a a business plan in the way that he's talking about he says businesses will be central to solving the climate crisis if you don't have businesses involved you won't be able to to solve it. And that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, the emissions that uh, that we produce in our everyday lives, uh, you know, there's always a business associated with them, whether it's the company selling the fuels or, or the other products or, or whatever it is. So, you know, if we don't have businesses uh, deeply involved in solving the climate crisis, we, we won't get anywhere. But on the other hand, a lot of activists are very concerned that you can go too far in that direction. So if you have businesses heavily involved uh, in COPs, in the negotiations, then they could try to capture the negotiations for their own ends. Um, Look at last year's COP. Um, There were an enormous number of oil and gas lobbyists uh, who were accredited to last year's COP. And you know, sure enough there was a discussion about trying to fuse out fossil fuels at that COP and it didn't get anywhere um, whether that was because of the business and the business lobbying or whether that was because of the, the countries uh, and their governments who opposed it um, we can't really say but you can see why people would be wary of business involvement at the same time
3: let's focus on the ultimate goal on the objective let's unite Let's do this in solidarity. Let's stop the fight. Let's stop the finger pointing. The challenge at hand is much greater than us wasting time.
2: Reading the the article that you wrote about your meetings with Al Jaber and your interviews with him, it seems as though he was quite frank with you at some points. And obviously at some points you surprised him. There's this particular exchange that you write about. Al Jabber seems to be laying the blame for emissions at the feet of the people who use fossil fuels, saying consumers need to change. I'm wondering if you can tell me about that.
4: Yes, he he, he said that, uh, you know, if you want to, to phase out fossil fuels, if you want to get rid of fossil fuels, people will have to stop consuming them. Um, And that is the case, you know, we we will have to stop creating demand uh, for these products. Companies, they extract fossil fuels uh, because there is a demand for it. But it's a tricky argument, really, because uh, blaming the people who consume the fossil fuels is, I said to him, is a bit like a a drug dealer uh, blaming uh, his customers. Um, As a society, we are hooked on fossil fuels and the fossil fuel companies um, do everything they can to feed that addiction um, you know they do it through price uh, they do it through the embedded nature of their products they do it through lobbying uh, and through talking to governments and so on and um, so it is very difficult to dislodge fossil fuels the fossil fuel industry
2: from its current position of dominance I'm curious to know what his reaction was when you compared it to a drug dealer. Well, he's, uh, he he
4: took it in his stride, uh, to be fair to him. I mean, you know, uh, the questions that I asked uh, in the interviews were robust. Um, you know, there's an awful lot that that has to be asked um, about how you're going to solve the climate crisis if you think that fossil fuels can still play a role. Um, So I did ask all of those questions. He had responses for for everything. You know, I mean, it's true that we need to look at demand for fossil fuels and it's true that that fossil fuel companies need to be part in some way of, of solving Uh, the climate crisis it's true as he says that we need to massively ramp up renewable energy the crucial thing that's missing from uh, Al-Jabbar's analysis though is time we don't have time to mess about now and he argues quite reasonably that you know we we should have uh, you know taken action on a lot of these things sooner and that's true we should have but the point is we are where we are now um, and if we don't phase down fossil fuels uh, very quickly, very rapidly, and replace them with clean energy, uh, and find different ways of uh, of running our societies, of running our economies, um, then we really will be toast. And that question of time is is of the essence here.
2: I also wanted to ask you about something slightly different. Uh, it is about COP, the war that is going on between Israel and Hamas. Do you have any sense of whether it might affect COP28? It will affect uh,
4: COP28 in some ways. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, we already had a very unsettled geopolitical situation because of the the war in Ukraine. Of course, which certainly cast a shadow over last year's COP, uh, and will do this year as well. Um, with a, a regional conflict uh, like this, I think it, it becomes even more important. Now, the UAE, the, the hosts, um, I and other journalists have asked them uh, about how uh, this conflict might might affect them. Um, they they have replied that you know their their security is is very strong. It's a very difficult situation. It should be said that uh, COPs have been going on uh, since the UN Framework Convention uh, on Climate was was actually signed in in 1992. So, you know, there have been numerous conflicts in the last 30 years that have cast a shadow over COPs. Uh, So it's not impossible for a COP to carry on even in the midst of that. It just does
2: make it more difficult for everyone. I guess the stakes couldn't be higher in more ways than one. Fiona Harvey, thank you so much. Thank you. And we will bring you much more on the UN Climate Talks in the coming weeks. And we've got some time now for some other climate stories in the news this week. A new report from the World Meteorological Foundation says sand and dust storms are increasingly threatening people's health safety and livelihoods, and climate change is making it worse. The Foundation's report says every year around 2,000 million tons of dust enters the atmosphere, darkening skies and harming air quality. Poor water and land management are partly to blame, but the problem is exacerbated by higher temperatures and drought that are brought on by a warming climate. That leads to higher evaporation and drier soils, according to the study. The foundation says exposure to dust particles has been associated with heart attacks, cardiovascular disease and lung cancer. Sand and dust storms also pose risks to aviation and ground transportation, as well as agriculture. The head of Suncor based in Alberta appeared before a House of Commons committee bowing. he is committed to cutting emissions. Richard Krueger testified in Ottawa after earlier comments raised concerns that Suncor was backing away from its promises to do more to battle climate change. Kruger says his earlier statements were meant to underscore the company's need to have a strong business in order to be an effective part of the energy transition. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth? newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Last week we heard about a man in Whistler, B.C. who wants to change the term natural gas. Eddie Dearden thinks one different word would help more people understand why this potent greenhouse gas needs to be phased out. Eddie designed sustainable homes. And when he talked to his clients about this fuel, he noticed a big difference in their response depending on what he called it.
3: I was putting the hard word on my clients not to use natural gas, as I called it in 2021. And, and they would really resist. They just started saying the most amazing things back to me, like, but it's natural, or it's green, it's good. Like smart, educated people, and their words were showing that they did not know what natural gas is. So by the end of 2021, I'd found this term that I believe is much more accurate, which is fossil gas. And from there onwards, I would tell my clients, don't use fossil gas. And I had close to 100% success convincing my clients not to use fossil gas.
2: All right, so there is Eddie's aha moment. And now he's been writing to city councils and the B.C. government, asking all of them to change their language to fossil gas in official documents. Now, after we heard from him, a lot of you got in touch to weigh in on his campaign. What on Earth? Rachel Sanders is here now to share some of those
1: emails. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. Yeah, we got quite a few emails from listeners, including this fun drawing of a dinosaur and a cow. What do you think of this? So we've got a okay, cow yeah. on the one side and there's a speech bubble coming out of the back of him saying natural gas. And then this nice drawing of a T-Rex with a speech bubble coming out of the back of him that says fossil gas. Uh,
2: wait, wait a second. I think you're missing a little detail yeah. there. Speech bubble's one thing, but exactly where they are on that drawing, um, I think, that the artist meant to portray um, farts.
1: I think you might be right. Yeah, not quite the way this works. I think, but it's, you, know, you get the you get the idea, right? You get the point of what he's trying to say.
2: Yeah, I get it. Uh, you know, it's um, it's somebody's art anyway. Um, I asked listeners to let us know whether they agree that a change in
1: terminology could lead to a change in policy. So, what is the verdict? While most of the people who wrote in say they think, yes, language is important, Samantha Bland wrote to say, I strongly believe that words, titles and terminology all count and that they make a significant difference to how things are consciously or even unconsciously perceived. The term natural gas is not accurate. The general public seems to be of the belief that if something is natural, it is, quote, unaltered by man and should therefore be okay. The term fossil gas is much more representative of the truth. Because a term has been used for a long time doesn't mean it should continue. Okay, here's another
2: email. Susan Brown wrote to say, I can get on board with his reasoning that the average person needs to have awareness of where fuel derives from. However, by this logic... Fossil needs to be in front of everything. Fossil plastics, fossil iPhone, fossil synthetic clothing, and so on. The common person has zero awareness of how deep fossil byproducts permeate our lives. It's not just about what fuels our cars and heats our homes. It's everything. Maybe you don't need the latest iPhone every year. Maybe you don't need fast fashion. Maybe you don't need Amazon deliveries three times a week consumption generally is the problem. And we all need to remember that reduce comes before reuse and recycle. And it's not just about energy products.
1: Yeah, thanks for that email, Susan. And I have to tell you, Eddie would absolutely agree with you. He actually uses the term fossil plastic, among other terms that he tacks the word fossil on the front of. Uh, And he's taught his four year old daughter to save fossil plastic as well. This does not surprise me. He's training her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here's another email. Jean Chard says, a few years ago, she and her husband needed a new furnace. At the time, natural gas lines had just been installed in her neighborhood. But she knew that natural gas is a fossil fuel, so they replaced their oil furnace with an electric heat pump, and she says it's one of the best decisions they've ever made. But she writes, quote, although I extolled the virtues of the heat pump, not least of which is the ability to cool the house in hot weather, several neighbors have since gone ahead with new furnaces using, quote, natural fossil gas. I believe a change in terminology might have swayed the decision of at least some of them. Well, that's interesting,
2: and and I know
1: that you have been living with a heat
2: pump for a Mm. while and you think it's a great thing. It's awesome. Right. Okay. Linda O'Neill wrote us to say, switching to the term fossil gas is an important step towards engaging us in the realities of our daily choices. Humans are contributing to climate change in a variety of ways and we can be more mindful about finding ways to reduce this. Calling natural gas fossil gas is one very important step towards shocking us into thinking
1: and acting differently. Hmm. Now, a couple of people wrote to ask about the specific terminology Eddie is advocating for. One person suggests we should just call it methane, since natural gas is primarily composed of methane. But you asked Eddie about that, didn't you? I did. That's right. Eddie's reasoning is that natural gas that comes from underground has other gases in it as well, including ethane and benzene. So he thinks fossil gas is the most accurate term. And someone else wrote to say that since natural gas is mostly methane, does that mean the atmosphere of Saturn, which has methane in it, is also a fossil gas? And the answer is no. Uh, Methane isn't always a fossil gas. It's created in a variety of ways, including when waste in landfills breaks down or when cows burp uh, or from some kind of methane producing process on Saturn as well. But when it's created in the Earth's crust from decomposing organic matter, that's when it's a fossil fuel.
2: Oh, Rachel, fossil fuel, methane, natural gas. You're learning a lot about I this. Am. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Rachel. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks for those emails. You can get in touch anytime about anything you hear on the program. The email is earth at cbc.ca. Paper or plastic?
3: Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic? No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The
5: podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester. Tea or coffee. For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: You're listening to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. Coming up, we know climate change is making wildfires worse, but our wildfire is making glaciers melt faster. We'll head out onto the ice in search of some answers.
3: Hi, it's Laura. How are you? <laughs> good. How are you?
2: I, I'm good. Nice to hear your voice again.
3: Yes. Apologies, my voice sounds a little bit nasally because I'm recovering from a cold, but I'm also feeling like very energetic today oh. after being trapped in bed all the yesterday. Oh. So like, I'm good to go.
2: <laughs> oh, I remember you're such an enthusiastic speaker. I think that that would overcome anything else, anyway. So, it's, in fact, it's actually hard for me to imagine you laying in bed for an entire day.
3: <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine myself laying in bed for an entire day. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, that is our newest columnist, and it's hard to imagine Chuck Odenivo sitting still. His resume is six pages long, and nearly everything on his plate has to do with climate justice solutions that put the experiences of marginalized communities front and center. Chuck's founded a nonprofit and a startup. He's won more than a dozen awards. He's just finishing his PhD. I mean, overachieve much, Chuck? <laughs>
3: Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Everyone does
2: this. (laughs) Really? You must have a a rather interesting group of friends then. (laughs) I'm just teasing you, though. I I mean, i was just reeling off a bit of your CV. But maybe better yet, you could introduce yourself for our listeners.
3: Hello. Bonjour. My name is Chuck Odenibo. I'm Franco Albertan, so I'm Francophone from Calgary. Oftentimes, when people hear me speak, they're like, oh, you must be from Quebec. And I'm like, no, there's Francophones across the damn country. Learn your country's history.
2: Now, Chuck is passionate about the environment and social justice and Canada's history, as you heard there. But there was a time when he could never have imagined himself doing climate advocacy.
3: I effectively grew up not seeing people that looked like me in environmental spaces. The main messaging uh, when I was younger was very much centered around you know, individual actions, right? People need to uh, stop flying. People need to you know, have less kids. I mean, there were entire ad campaigns saying like, disconnect and go outdoors, leave your cell phone at home and go camping. And these were things that just didn't align with me, didn't align with my values, didn't align with my lived experiences. Some of these messaging also seemed very frankly racist, right? Whenever you saw any messages about have less kids, You know, you're always seeing pictures of, like, someone with seven kids, oftentimes black, oftentimes from Africa. It's all of these sort of different societal messages where I couldn't see myself in the environment. I couldn't see myself in nature spaces. I didn't see what I was doing as loving the environment, as enjoying the environment, as connecting with nature. And so I could never imagine myself being an environmentalist or a climate activist.
2: Okay, but you've you've changed your mind, obviously. Was there a specific moment when when the light bulb went on, you said, okay, I'm doing this?
3: Um, It's a little bit of a funny story. When I was doing my undergraduate degree in university, I took environmental science classes for fun. And I remember distinctly, in my third year of university, I took a class just called sustainability, and the prof was a little bit avant-garde. And so for our final exam, the prof told us, you've got two weeks to change the world, and then submit proof to me, and I'll grade that, or... You can do a literature review. And so we did this photo shoot in a municipal park, um, nude. So we were naked in this park with computers, laptops, books, right? All the things we kind of associated with modernity. And we took a, um, a photo series that I called My Green Dream. The idea of having humanity return to being in harmony with nature without losing the advancements that we've made.
2: Were, were the computers strategically placed?
3: They were very strategically (laughs) placed. Computers and books were all strategically placed. (laughs) Okay. And so it was really sort of um, just an ode to the environment, an ode to this dream that I have of us being able to really connect and live in harmony with nature while still enjoying the comforts of modern-day living. And that photo series ended up getting published on the website for the United Nations. Wow. And I got named that year one of the top 25 in under 25 in Canada. And I got an A plus in that class.
2: <laughs> I was gonna ask and you. And so like
3: <laughs> I will say that the professor did feel it feel it was a little bit weird to have a framed picture of her student naked, but <laughs> she was very happy with it. And so that was I would say definitely my turning point because the reason why that hit me hard is because I was just doing it for fun. I was being myself in nature. And it resonated hard enough for it to appear on an international body's website. And so that told me that I have a space here. And then as I entered into environmental spaces... The need to switch from just being an environmentalist to being very much an intersectional environmentalist who advocates for environmental justice and climate justice became more and more emphasized.
2: And I'm thrilled that over the next few months, you'll be bringing us some stories about the way people's identities, gender, race, class, mental, physical abilities intersect with climate solutions. And I just want to talk about, there's a government-funded project you're part of right now that involves three rural communities in Canada. What's the goal of the project?
3: So the project is called Community Action for Workforce Development. And the goal of the project is to help three rural communities in Canada. It's a pilot project. So ideally, you know, we use these three rural communities as a model and then apply it to more rural communities if the pilot works. But the idea is to support three rural communities in an economic transition towards a clean economy so that they can become more climate resilient. And then as part of the project, we are targeting mainly marginalized peoples, um, recognizing that marginalization can happen because of race, language, um, immigration status, um, accent, uh, gender, all that stuff, recognizing that when you're able to support the most marginalized in the society. We support the entire society moving forward.
2: So the three communities are golden in British Columbia, Slave Lake, Alberta, Arm prior Ontario. Um, how is it going so far? Are you managing to make progress?
3: It's been really interesting so far because um, the three communities are all very different. And so it's been very fascinating realizing sort of what might work in one of them might not work in the others and hearing their concerns in terms of the economic transition and the economic growth, what it is that they would like to see, what they're uncomfortable with, um, and how to navigate those intricacies.
2: Well, what types of jobs, though, would people be doing instead of working in, just for example, oil and gas?
3: So one of the things that we are trying to do with the project is we're trying to support small and medium businesses, which make up the backbone of the Canadian economy, um, in being able to source upscale and hire um, necessary workers for what it is that they want to do. And so rural communities face this really interesting situation where they struggle in finding, attracting, and retaining qualified talent, which thereby hinders innovation and hinders small and medium businesses in in what they're trying to do.
2: One of the other challenges must be, though, I mean, if we focus on Slave Lake, um, the oil and gas and forestry industries are, are, are big in, in those, to those kinds of communities. I'm wondering how much those sectors contribute to the local economy
3: so slave lake for example has a very boom bust economy they're very used to transient people right people who come in they work and they leave right and so taking it from very much a climate angle one of the really interesting things is just how much a job becomes a part of people's identity right slave lake is one of those places where you don't have to graduate from high school if you can secure an oil and gas job you can make good money very quickly and very early on and the same thing with forestry and so the difficulty with that is if there's any uh, negative impacts to those industries right boom bust, cycle uh, these people struggle in transitioning because for them to transition they either have to get an education which takes a while and so you're broken you're poor for a while or hop into a different industry and start from the bottom and climb again via experience. It's it's hard to stomach, that it's hard to go from making six figures to all of a sudden, you know, trying to land a job that's giving you the lower five figures, maintaining your certain lifestyle, maintaining a certain level of pride. So there's that element, right? But the other element is back to the identity piece. One of the struggles in Alberta, especially, is that recognition of climate change comes with a sense of guilt that, oh, am I part of the problem? Oh, are people looking down on me because I'm working in oil and gas? And that creates a sense of I need to fight back, right? And so even with this project, while in Golden and in Orange Fire, we're able to say, yeah, we're hoping for just transition. We're hoping to transition a clean economy. In Slave Lake, we have to be very careful because Slave Lake does recognize climate change, right? Half the entire city a couple of years ago had to be evacuated because of a forest fire that came and decimated as I think it was about 60%. Of the town, right? And so they're very aware of climate change, and the impacts of climate change, but that doesn't negate the fact that the entire economy is based on natural resources. And then even with the on the immigrant side, there's a the sector that gave them a chance, gave them an income, allowed them to bring their family over, allowed them to feed their family. The sector that made them feel mm. Canadian.
2: Yeah, I, I, can we drill down into it just a little bit more, though? I, I mean your conversations with them, how do you think race, gender, and class influence the type of jobs that, that they see themselves doing?
3: We had this really interesting discussion. So the person who I was talking to in this case um, is part of the 2SLGBTQIA um, plus community. And they are talking about how their dad is an incredibly loving person, very open-minded, very supportive, but he views anything equal as feminine. Hmm. And so he sees this effort to render things more green, to greenify the economy, to switch and transition to a clean economy as a way of feminizing men. And so there's a lot of like masculinity and ideals of masculinity that are tied into oil and gas, where working on gas, working on the rigs makes you a real man.
2: What do you do with that? Where does the conversation go?
3: Yeah, one of the um, things that came out of that conversation is we need to make environmentalism sexy. (laughs) Um,
2: Back to your portrait.
3: (laughs) (laughs) right? And so this is what's so fascinating. And this is why I always talk about climate justice specifically, because in a society where we've heavily feminized nature, right? We talk about mother nature. And so in a society that struggles to you know, accept women in certain positions, right? Women on the ring still face a lot of sexism. And so in a society that still struggles with gender equality, how can we ever respect nature and harmonize our society with the environment?
2: You are posing some really big questions here, which makes me glad that we're going to have you back on because we don't have time to get into all of this right now. But (laughs) it's been a really interesting conversation, Chuck. I'm I'm, uh, going to be so happy to talk to you again in, in the months to come.
3: It has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Okay, for our next story, we're heading out on a journey to find out why glaciers are melting faster than many anticipated.
0: Having back-to-back years of record mass loss, glacier mass loss, scientists have often said uh, that we are sliding down a steep slope. Um, In the case of glaciers in Western Canada, we have jumped, literally jumped off a cliff.
2: As much as you kind of wish it wasn't so, you've heard it before, global warming is actually linked to melting glaciers.
5: Yeah, it's not good news. And it's worse than many scientists expected. But, Camille, you've been looking into another way that climate change actually might be speeding up the melt. Yes, and this has to do with wildfires and the smoke they produce. You see, scientists are trying to figure out how ash from wildfires is actually darkening the surface of the glaciers and might be worsening the melt. Now, i never thought about this before. Now that I do,
2: it makes sense, unfortunately, and I want to hear more. But we got to just pause for a
5: second and let listeners know who you are. Sure. I'm Camille Vernet, and I'm a video producer for Radio Canada, and I focus on the environmental and climate crisis. And
2: I'm Laura Lynch. This is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of
5: climate solutions. And so in
2: that vein, Camille, you got to promise me that you're going to uh, give us some solutions for these melting glaciers you're about to tell us about. I'll do my best. Okay, let's get into it. Camille, you followed a team from the University of Northern BC uh, for two days, studying changes in the reflectivity
5: of the glaciers. Tell me what that was like. So I got dropped off by a helicopter right on the ice. And it's a bit of a surreal landscape, you know? I was surrounded by white. There was a beautiful peak in front of us where the ice was starting, and then it would flow right down to the horizon. And it wasn't as icy as I expected, so not too hard to walk on, because the ground was like an in-between snow and ice. But we were wearing harness, carrying ice picks, just in case someone fell into a crevasse. So we had to look where we were going, you know, and um, not fall into one of those big water holes that can drop 30 meters down. Whoa. (laughs) And it was just us on the glacier. Um, We're far from people, uh, near Pemberton, which is about 150 kilometers north of Vancouver. And I landed there with four scientists, three from the University of Northern British Columbia and one from Hakai Institute, a research and conservation organization.
2: Now, Place Glacier um, is not too far away from a glacier that I've been to twice, which is on Mount meager, and I was actually there last year around the same time you were there this year, so
5: everything that you're talking about, I can actually picture that and you know when you go on a glacier usually it's it's cold right yeah. uh, you you wear a big jacket, but even at two thousand meters elevation, we were not cold. It was a very hot August day uh, down in the valley it got it got to thirty six So quite a contrast on the warm air, you know, and the cold ice under our feet. They started working right away. They were using a spectrometer. It's like a gun. Um, They pointed at the snow and the ice to measure the albedo. That's the amount of light hitting a surface that it reflects back. And the person holding that gun was Brian Menounos. He's a professor at the University of Northern British Columbia and Canada's research chair in Glacier Change. And here's why he says it's important to measure the reflectivity of the ice.
0: One of the largest sources of energy for melt is from sunlight. So as we darken these surfaces, the energy from sunlight is absorbed and accelerates and enhances the melt at that surface. So when you combine that with the temperature and the warming of the, of the air temperature, it sort of sets up a, a situation that's not at all good for the glaciers.
5: So the goal of the team is to collect data to better understand how the surface is darkening and use the data to feed models that will also take into account projected changes in temperature and projected changes in precipitation.
2: So it's kind of like a a weather forecast
5: for the glacier. Exactly. Okay. Scientists have been measuring the changes year after year on place since 1965. And this glacier is reacting to climate change. Reacting. Okay. What does that mean, though? How is Place Glacier doing? So Brian told me that this glacier, like many others, is not in good health, losing more ice than it gains.
0: We are finding that the melt is far exceeding, in some cases, what we had expected from some of the earlier models. We're losing the fern. We're losing these uh, optically bright surfaces on these glaciers. Not only is it getting warmer, but it's getting less reflective.
5: I could see that most of the surface was not pure white. It had dark particles on top, and he picked up some of those gray deposits and he spread them on his hand.
0: Over time, this material has just been accumulating at this surface. Most of it is likely sediment and rock that comes either through the glacier, but at this point it's more coming off the valley sides and accumulating on the surface. But because the glacier is in an unhealthy state and it loses more mass than it gains, this surface is just getting darker and darker.
2: that makes sense to me, and I did I, again, I saw that same thing on on uh, Mount meager, that that kind of dark, almost tiny gravelite stuff on there it's obviously a big factor of the darkening but what about the effect of smoke or ashes on the
5: melting well actually the problem was right in our face it was a smoky day the sky was covered with a thin layer of smoke because of the forest fires that were raging in the province and there's still a lot of things to figure out about how exactly forest fires are impacting glaciers and especially how soot coming from the fires is darkening the glaciers. Charlie Bourque, one of the UNBC students that was with us, she's looking at the effect of black carbon, a particle naturally occurring in soot, on pink algaes. Pink is it's a natural phenomenon. I don't know if you've seen it before, but it happens in high altitude. And it gives a pink tint to the snow, especially at the beginning of summer. I have seen that, and it, I've, I've never known exactly what it was. it kind of that weird rosy glow on snow. That's, exactly. Okay. And again, that's darkening the surface. And those algae are actually feeding on that black carbon. So she's trying to figure out if the ashes are making them thrive. But it's not the only effect uh, that the fires can have. There's also the effect of the smoke. That smoke can actually be blocking the sunlight.
0: During times where the smoke is really thick, um, during the, the daytime it can feel cooler because there's less energy coming in from sunlight. But there's, a, there's also an effect that can occur at nighttime. That is, if the smoke is around these mountainous regions there's less energy leaving the surface at nighttime. We refer to this as radiative cooling. That's not occurring as efficiently under thick, heavy wildfire smoke. It's somewhat similar in a way to cloudy conditions. So there's still a lot of unknowns and it's an area of active research.
5: So it's still a bit of a puzzle, but what we know is that the surface is darkening and it's darkening rapidly. So they had this aircraft from the Hakai Institute and the aircraft was flying for about an hour over our heads. And this was an important time for them to collect data because they wanted to do it at the same time the plane was flying. So they were rushing a little bit. I was rushing also behind them to try to capture that. And basically what this plane is doing is two different things. First of all, there's this laser that's bouncing off the surface of the ice. It's measuring the surface of the glacier uh, in very great detail. So with this, they can compare it one year from another. Ah, okay. And it tells you how much ice has been lost and where on the entire ice sheet. And secondly, the the plane was also capturing uh, the albedo, so the same measurements they were taking on the ground, but again on the entire ice sheet.
2: Okay. So so the people on the ground are doing their own measurements and, and then it gets matched up with the plane's measurements. That's what we're
5: talking exactly. about. Exactly. And okay. what they're trying to do is validate what the plane is actually taking from the air. Did you manage to keep up with them? <laughs> <laughs> Barely. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: Well, there, there is obviously the work they're doing. There's the science of what they're doing. But I know I've, I've met these kinds of scientists in the past and they're usually pretty passionate about what they're doing and passionate about being there and standing on mm-hmm. the glaciers. I'm wondering how, what you heard from them about how it feels for them to be witnessing what's going on firsthand.
5: Yes, uh, spending two days with them, you know, they had some time to reflect on that. And Brand Menounos has been fascinated by glaciers and studying them close up since 1996 when he was still a student. And I got to eavesdrop on a chat he has with student Charlie Bourke, who's been working on glaciers for a few years.
0: Watching how quickly and rapidly our ice is disappearing from the landscape makes me sleep a little less well. Often I feel like uh, when I tell people what I study, I feel like a funeral director. Um, it's somber. But I also think that you have to actually communicate what you're doing so that the public understands and it's not just other scientists. And most importantly, if people care about these natural resources that we have, this beautiful, I love glaciers, they're absolutely stunning, we have to collectively do something, and that is rapidly mitigate greenhouse gas emissions.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think another part that is kind of worrisome, and
2: I currently live in the Rockies where you kind of can see it much more firsthand. Because in the, the Rocky Mountain receives such lower amount of snow in the winter, and now um, we really rely on those glaciers for water in our river. And currently looking at these water, it's kind of it's it's a bit of a wake up call seeing how low the water level is, and to to wonder how much water we'll have in the future in these super hot summer, um, as we're relying a lot on the glacier to support us in these time of the year.
5: So as we were walking down, we we're navigating between those small streams of water, having to jump over them. And that's very important for fresh water, for fish and for people. And like Charlie was saying, we had a really dry, hot summer this year in BC. And, you know, they were quite concerned about the data they were collecting.
2: Well, I'm sure they were. I mean, obviously, if things, things are
5: melting, it's having an impact on, on everything, right? Exactly. And on day two, one of their missions was to redrill a few poles. Those six meter poles are drilled every year in the ice to measure the melt. So you could see them sticking out of the ice. And because the melt was more intense than expected, some of those poles actually collapsed on another glacier. So that's a loss of data. So they were trying to prevent that. But it also tells you how surprised scientists were. By the amount of melt. Yeah,
2: they weren't expecting the poles to fall. They didn't think it was going to melt that much. So, exactly. So do you know how Place
5: Glacier has fared after that hot, smoky summer? So Mark Edney, he's the head scientist with Natural Resource Canada, and he's the one who drills the pole each year in the fall. And I spoke with him just a few days ago, and after, after he received the data from this year's melt on Place Glacier
0: the initial results
1: after you know a quick a uh, quick run through the numbers and a pro- and processing indicated that place glacier uh, experienced a very significant melt this year um actually pretty much the greatest uh, amount of melt we've ever seen uh since the start of uh monitoring efforts on place glacier and it's not just the amount of melt we saw overall it's the melt we saw
0: at higher elevations on the glacier which was very surprising
2: okay kimi that doesn't sound great, but you promised me some solutions. <laughs> so what, yes. what, what, what is
5: there? So every degree of climate warming counts. A study by international researchers, co-authored by Brian, does predict that half the world's glaciers... Half? Half are expected to disappear within 80 years. So imagine, place glacier, completely gone. Wow. And that's even under the best-case scenario of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees.
2: Well, I, I gotta say them, but limiting warming would do something else. It would help to prevent extreme wildfire and all the ash. Those fires would drop on glaciers.
5: It's all connected, and Brian says the more we limit the warming, the more we stand a chance to avoid a complete deglaciation.
0: I feel like we have had enough warning signals that we have altered the climate system. We really are at a point at which we need to act. We need to rapidly mitigate greenhouse gas emissions.
5: So for him, his work is not just about, you know, getting another scientific paper out. He wants the public and policymakers to really understand the impact that our actions and fossil fuel emissions have on Western Canada's glaciers. Camille Vernet, that was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Laura.
2: Now, we've been hearing from listeners over the past few weeks about their broken stuff. Cindy Young is one of them. I'm on kettle number four now. So with my first two kettles, the catch that keeps the lid closed kept breaking because it's just a cheap piece of plastic, right? And I think probably a lot of other people have tossed kettles into the landfill because of some piece that is designed to fail, it almost seems like. And it really bothers me that there is an expense, an environmental expense, a climate change expense to producing all this plastic that gets used for, what, a couple of years and then it has to be replaced. Gosh, I just wish there was a way we could let manufacturers know that we are mad as hell and we don't want to take it anymore, you know, like, yeah. Hey, Cindy, you found a way to maybe let them know <laughs> right here on what on earth? Four broken kettles. No wonder Cindy is as mad as hell. That is the kind of story we have been hearing a lot lately. And yes, the energy and the resources needed to keep on replacing appliances and devices have a climate impact. But there are solutions. And in the next few weeks, we're going to look at right to repair laws where they stand both here in Canada and around the world. And we'll get a little DIY fix-it advice as well. In fact, I'm heading off to a repair cafe. Tune in next week to hear all about it. Now remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review and a shout out this week to Climate Grand, who gave us five stars and said, This show is amazing and makes a great contribution by helping us find hope. So thank you. Well, thank you. And that is all for us this week. The show was put together by Rachel Sanders, Vivian Luck, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson and Katherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to Anna Park. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.